This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Welcome to our latest bonus edition of Intelligence Matters. Earlier this week, we hosted an Intelligence Matters live event at the Michael V. Hayden Center at the Shar School at George Mason University. This was an unusual edition of the podcast because I was the one being interviewed by the executive producer of the podcast and CBS journalist Olivia Gazis. So in this case, you get to hear from me. I'm Michael Morell, and this is a bonus edition of Intelligence Matters. Welcome, everybody, um, and thank you for attending this live taping of Intelligence Matters. Uh, a big thank you to the Shar School, uh, to the Hayden Center, Dean Roselle and Larry. Uh, thank you for hosting us, General Hayden and Mrs. Hayden. Thank you very much for being here. Um, in the time that Michael has been hosting Intelligence Matters, I'm sure he's gotten used to asking all of the questions. Now he's finally in the hot seat. It's fun seat. to ask the questions. <laughs> um, as Larry mentioned, uh, you should know that Michael and I, along with Jamie Benson, work together on Intelligence Matters uh, at CBS News, from which we both get a paycheck. Uh, I, for being a journalist, you, I think, for vehemently denying that you are a journalist. <laughs> Sometimes appearances to the contrary, right? Um, so in keeping with the typical rhythm of Intelligence Matters, I thought we would start out by uh, an overview of Michael's career, move to some of the big news of today and pressing issues of the moment, and then talk about some intelligence community-specific challenges, sure. if okay with you. Sure. Can I just say one thing, though? Yes. Um, so this acting director thing, um, when I was acting director the second time, my wife and I went out to dinner not far from here. Um, the difference between being the deputy director and the director, as General Hayden knows, is the director gets four security guys in two cars. When you're the deputy director, you get two security guys in one car. So as acting director, I had four security guys in two cars. So we pull into this parking lot, and there's a guy standing against the wall, and he's looking at us. And you can tell by the look on his face that he's thinking, who is this? Is this Michelle Obama? Is this John Kerry? Who is this? So we pull in. He's on my wife's side of the car. She gets out, and he says to her, is that somebody important? 
And without missing a beat, she says, nah, he's just acting important. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> Um, Michael, my understanding is that you didn't actually grow up dreaming of mm. joining the Central Intelligence Agency. You actually had a much more exotic line of work in mind. What was that? So uh, when I first went to college, and I was a first-generation college student, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was going to major in political science and then go to law school. One of the requirements at the University of Akron, which is where I went, um, for a political science degree was an economics class. So I took an economics class in my freshman year, and I fell in love with it. And so I became an economics major. And I fell in love with economics as a science. I thought it not only explained the economy, but I thought it explained human behavior. And I wanted to go to grad school and get a PhD and teach at the university level. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I had a professor who I think did some work for the agency. Um, Never quite sure about that because he died early in life, and so I was never able to talk to him about it. Don't you have other um, ways of finding that out? Uh, you know, I could have probably, but I didn't have time. Um, and he encouraged me to send a resume to the agency. Um, and here I was, this you know, kind of lower middle class kid from Akron who had never been to Washington, D.C. before. And the agency invites me to come to Washington for two days of interview, and I think, you know what, I'm going to grad school. I know where I'm going. That's what I'm going to do, but I've never been to Washington, so I will go to Washington on the taxpayer's dime and see our nation's capital with no interest at all in working for the CIA. In two days of interviews, I was blown away by the mission of the place. Um, I was blown away by the capabilities that they were able to talk to me about. They obviously. showed those to you while you were interviewing? Very few, it turns out, but, but enough to get you interested. Um, and then I was, you know, most important, blown away by the people that I met. Not only the quality of the people I met, but how nice everybody was, um, how much of a family it was. And that's one of the defining aspects of the place. Um, and they said to me, you know this grad school thing that you keep, that you keep on talking to everybody about? You, if you come here, we'll take care of that. So you can go to night school as soon as you arrive, and we'll pay for that. And if things go well after three or four years, we'll send you back to school full time. We'll pay your tuition. We'll pay your salary, um, which they turned out that they did. Um, and so I said yes and never looked back. Effectively saving a school full of students <laughs> from your lectures in economics, although it's never too late. <laughs> yes. Um, was there a particular moment or, or person or event that you think was formative that convinced you that you wanted to spend your career at the agency, or were you just going to job to job? You know, it's interesting. Um, I did not feel comfortable my first six or nine months. There was no onboarding program when I joined the agency. There was no analytic training program. I didn't have my first training class until I was three years in. Um, and so I felt like a fish out of water. And I actually thought about leaving in that first six to nine months. Um, and then somehow, somehow I felt better and stayed. Um, no, I think, you know, except for those, except for that initial few months, there wasn't a single day that I didn't want to go to work. Um, if Mary Beth were here, my wife, she would tell you, yeah, he's telling you the truth. I looked forward to Mondays, not Fridays. Um, so I don't think there was one particular moment. It was the nature of the work. It was the meaning of the work in terms of keeping the country safe. It's 
how intellectually stimulating it is um, and how intellectually challenging it is. The issues are never the same. They're different every day. So it is a really remarkable place to work. You spent a, a large part of your career on the analytic side of the agency. Can you just tell us briefly about how that is distinct from the other things the agency does and how it informs some of the other things? That the so the agency does? basically does three things. Um, one is what I did, which is called all source analysis. So it's taking all of the information that's available to the US government and bringing it together um, with an expert who's been trained in how to do analysis. And that person tries to make sense of it for the national security team, for the President of the United States, for Congress, for the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. That's all source analysis. By the way, that's why the CIA was, was created. Um, it was created because the United States of America had all the information that it needed to know that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. It just wasn't put together. So CIA was created to be the place where all that information came together. The second thing the agency does is what most people think of when they think of the agency is intelligence collection, um, both recruiting human beings to spy for the United States and then some very special technical kinds of collection that we really can't talk about. Um, but those, those folks collect secret information that then goes into that pile that the intelligence analysts look at. And then the third thing the agency does, which, which is what a lot of movies are about, is covert action. So the President of the United States says to the agency, there's a policy objective that I want to achieve, and I want you, CIA, to help, but I want you to do it secretly, and here's the activities that I'm authorizing you to do as part of this covert action. Um, so those are the three things. There's this lore that analysts and operators at the agency, in particular, don't mix very well, oil and water. Do you think that that is true? And if so, why might that be the case? So I, I, I don't think they don't mix well. Um, the cultures are very different. Um, and I think the best way to think about how different the cultures are is to look at the hiring profile. So the hiring profile for an analyst, critical thinking skills, oral and written communication skills, and intellectual curiosity. Right? Not just understanding, wanting to understand the service of a problem, but wanting to understand a problem in all of its depth and all of its complexity. The hiring profile for operations officers, um, interpersonal skills, incredibly strong interpersonal skills, incredibly strong emotional intelligence skills. And this is going to sound strange, but self-confidence to the point of overconfidence. Why? Because you can imagine that sitting across the table from another human being and trying to convince them to commit espionage against their own country is one of the hardest conversations you'll ever have. And boy, if you don't have a lot of confidence, you're not going to go anywhere near that conversation. So two completely different types of people you hire, two completely different cultures. Um, and I think that, that's what makes the mix interesting. It's not, there's not, um, I don't think, any particular concern on either side about the other. Would you say that they're more enmeshed today than they maybe Absolutely, used to be? absolutely. And all along, right, it just didn't happen when, when Director Brennan actually brought every, all, all the pieces together. Um, it, it had been in train long before that. Um, want to observe one of the most fascinating elements of your career is that you happen to be with the you were with the President of the United States both on the day of the September 11th attacks and on the day of the bin Laden raid. 
what stands out to you about those days in particular? And did it feel on the date of the bin Laden raid like a bookend to your experience in any way, or did it not quite provide the closure that you might have expected it to? So, you know, I, um, I, I remember 9-11 um, every minute of the day and every detail of every minute of that day. Um, and quite frankly, it would take three or four hours to kind of walk through it all. But I think to sum it up, I'd say it was, it was a mixture of the intensity of doing my job with the surreal. So an example of the intensity of doing my job, um, the president asked to see me on the flight from Barksdale Air Force Base to Offutt Air Force Base. So it was the president, me, and Andy Card, the White House Chief of Staff. And the president looked me right in the eye and said, Michael, who did this? Um, and I told the president that I had not seen any intelligence yet that would take us to a perpetrator. And he said, I understand the cat. So I said, what you're going to get is my personal opinion. Um, and he said, Michael, I understand the caveat. Now move on. I told him, Mr. President, there's two nation states with the ability to do this, Iran and Iraq. But neither one has anything to gain, and both of them have everything to lose from doing something like this. I said, no, when we get to the end of the trail, we're going to find al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And I told him I would bet my children's future on that. He then very quickly said, when will we know? which is General Hayden knows is the kind of direct question that you get from a president, particularly President Bush. There is no answer to that. When will we know? So I fell back on something that analysts rely on to a very significant degree, context. So I provided him some context. So I, I said, here's how long it took us in previous attacks. Um, East Africa bombings, uh, two days to figure out it was al-Qaeda. USS Cole several months to figure out it was al-Qaeda. The Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia, almost a year to figure out the Iranians were behind that attack. So I said, Mr. President, we may know soon, or then it may take some time. That's kind of the example of doing my job. An example of the surreal, and there were many, many moments. Um, on final approach to Andrews, the president's military aide was looking out the left side of the aircraft, and he waved me over. Um, and there was an F-16 on the wingtip. He said, they're from the DC Air National Guard. There's another one on the other wingtip. The plane was so close, you could see the pilot. You could see the pilot's facial features. You could see the pilot looking at us. And in the distance, you could see the still burning Pentagon. And then he said something that sent shivers up my spine. He said, do you know why they're there? Because at that point, all commercial flights in the United States were grounded. And I said, no. He said, they're there in case somebody fires a surface-to-air missile at us on final approach. Their job is to put themselves between that missile and the President of the United States. The Bin Laden raid, it wasn't, it wasn't, that, it wasn't the day itself that I remember the most. The, 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 the two moments that I remember the most about the Bin Laden raid were the first the first time I heard about it, so in August of 2010, the head of our counterterrorism center said to Director Panetta and to me, I need to see you alone. This was after one of our three times a week meeting with them. So he came into the director's office and he said, we found this guy named Abu Ahmed. And that name meant nothing to either one of us. 
So he explained who Abu, Abu Ahmed was. He explained the compound where he was living. He explained what that compound looked like. Looked like in that meeting, nobody said the word bin Laden, but the hair on the back of my neck stood up because he had been very close to bin Laden prior to 9-11. And detainees had told us that he could be a courier for bin Laden. And one detainee even told us that he could be the kind of guy who could be living with bin Laden. So that's one moment that I really remember. The other moment I really remember is President Obama knowing that I was with President Bush on 9-11, sent me to Dallas two weeks after to give President Bush a full briefing. Um, and by the way, people don't know this, but the very first phone call that President Obama made after we concluded that we indeed had killed bin Laden was to President Bush. So I took with me the lead analyst who figured out where bin Laden was, and I took, me, I took with me the JSOC J3, the guy who planned the mission. So they did all the talking. We spent two and a half hours with President Bush um, at the end. Um, but, uh, by the way, he was, he was like a kid in a candy store. He wanted to know every single detail. He remembered, sir, data points that you had told him, briefed him on in this, in this storyline. Um, and you know, he wanted to know everything. At the end, he said, you know, Laura and I were going to go to the movies tonight, but this is better than any movie that you're ever going to see, and we're staying home. <laughs> and then he got up, and he walked to his desk, and he pulled out his commander-in-chief challenge coin, and he slapped it in my hand, and I saw closure in his eyes, and that's when I felt closure for the first time. You did? Yeah. What, what goes through your mind when you hear news that such that was uh, confirmed by the White House this week that Hamza bin Laden, bin Laden's son, uh, has been killed? So this was actually something that was reported on several months ago, right? Um, leaked several months ago, and the, the, the death of bin Laden, Hamza bin Laden actually taken place over a year ago. So he was being groomed. Um, to take over al-Qaeda at some point. And Hamza bin Laden was, was the son with the, the, you know, the strongest belief in the ideology. And he has quite a bit of charisma. So him taking over the group someday you know, was, a, was a significant risk. So removing him from the battlefield was an absolutely good thing. Uh, I want to close out this section on your career. Um, I did try to solicit questions and some embarrassing stories from your former colleagues. You either have very loyal <laughs> colleagues or no embarrassing stories, because none of those were really forthcoming. Um, Thanks, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, more than a few suggested asking you about your experience with different types of leadership, different leaders and types of leadership, because the span of your CIA career was something like six presidents, right? But you worked very closely with, with two. two of them. Uh, and of course, there are CIA directors who had uh, a range of personalities as well. So can you just tell us a little bit briefly what you took away from the most effective styles of leadership? And then maybe talk a little bit about how you and your team learned to adapt to those styles, especially when they came one after another and were drastically different. Yeah, so it's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me this. Um, so I think the two people who I learned the most from about running a large organization um, were General Hayden um, and George Tenet. And they had a very different approach. Um, General Hayden's approach was, was, I mean, there was a big leadership piece, but there was a very significant management piece um, let's figure out what we need to do. 
Uh, let's figure out how to get it done, and let's get it done, and let's hold people accountable by bringing them in to tell us how they're doing. Um, it's a rem really effective management strategy. So if you've asked somebody, to make this up, if you've asked somebody to find bin Laden, then having them come in once a week and tell you how they're doing at finding bin Laden puts a tremendous amount of pressure on them to get something done between last week and this week. Um, and I learned that from General Hayden. Um, the other person I learned a tremendous amount from was George Tenet, who led by charisma, you know, who led by um, uh, literally hugging people, not just figuratively, but literally. Um, and I think actually putting those two together, those two pieces together, um, is, is what I tried to do every day. Last question on your career. Did you leave the agency thinking that you would go back one day? Um, yes, I did. <laughs> um, Has that changed? Uh, you know, I was convinced that a certain candidate for president was going to win. Um, and, you know, as of 6 o'clock on election night, she thought she was going to win. And the current president thought he was going to lose. Um, and that turned out different just a few hours later. So, yeah. We'll revisit this question later on. I want to get to some of the, yeah. the news of the day. It was a long drive. Day. I was in Chicago at the time teaching a class. Um, and not only did the Cubs beat the Indians, um, which was devastating enough for me since I'm from Ohio, um, but then that long drive home from Chicago uh, two days after the election. We'll circle back to it. Let's talk about um, Saudi Arabia, sure. Iran. Situation is in flux. We have information that is still coming in. Um, I want to set the scene a little bit by asking you what, if you were at your former place of work, what questions would you be asking right now? Would you be asking analysts to look into right now? And what would you be looking to equip policymakers with as they consider either escalation or its alternative? So, you know, the, there, there's fundamental questions about, the first question is what happened, right? What weapons were used um, in the attack and where did they come from? And if they didn't come directly from Iran, did the Iranians have a role in where they did come from, whether it was somewhere in Iraq or whether it was somewhere in Yemen, right? So that's kind of question one. Question two is what are the Iranians thinking? Right? If, if the answer to question one is it either came from Iran or they were involved, right? What are the Iranians thinking? Help the president think about that. What are they trying to achieve? Why did they do this? Um, and then I think step three is as the policy process moves forward is to help policymakers think about the potential implications of their policy options. So one policy option is to do nothing. That's what the president chose the last time the Iranians attacked. Uh, unmanned U.S. drone. Um, po policy option in this case is to actually counterstrike. What are the what are the implications of each of those? Right, so the policymakers can think about it. Those are the kind of three things that I'd be focused on. But I think the first one, and what the what the intelligence community is probably wrestling with right now, if they haven't already figured it out, is what happened. Do you think that they have already come to an assessment? I ask this because the Secretary of State was pretty quick yeah. to point the finger at Iran definitively yeah. and unequivocally. The president has been more recalcitrant on this yeah. front. Even the Saudis haven't said definitively that it's yeah. Iran. So, so, so what do you think is So here's what I'll say. I, I, find it, I find it 
hard to imagine that with all of our intelligence assets in the Middle East, and even more importantly, all of our military assets in the Middle East, that we don't have a pretty good understanding of wh what was fired, whether it was a drone or a cruise missile. They, they fly at very, very different rates of speed, and where they came from. Um, anything that would be fired from Iran would show up on US military radar. But, so I, 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 have, I think we have a pretty good sense. But on the question of attribution, how murky does it get when, for example, it can be an Iranian-made weapon, it can be staged from Iran, um, but it may not have been, you know, to use a phrase, pull, the, Iran may not have pulled the trigger. Yeah. How much does that make the So, the so if, it, if it's not from Iran, right, if it's from Iraq or from Yemen, which seems less and less likely, um, but if it's from Iraq, then you have to you have to you you have to look into the relationship between that particular group that launched it or fired it um, and the Iranians. Now, I'll tell you with absolute certainty that the Iranians provide drones um, and the explosives that go on them and the training and how to operate them to the Houthis. We know that um, the UN said that publicly, which is why I can say it publicly. Um, and so you know a lot of this in advance. But you know, if somebody else, if a proxy is doing it for you, the f that fact makes it more difficult you know, to attribute the attack to the ultimate uh, source. But you know, it's pretty clear Shia militia in Iraq or the Houthis in Yemen that, that whatever was, sh was, was fired was either provided the, by the Iranians in whole or provided by the Iranians in pieces. I want to ask about proportionality because it's been sort of a recurrent yep. question. Um, as the Iranians have gotten more aggressive yep. and yet still have taken actions that land be arguably below the threshold of armed conflict, what would you say, what do you think is the range of options being considered right now? Yeah, so I don't know what the range of options being considered, um, but here's what, I would, here's what I would tell you would happen in a normal administration. <laughs> And I just say that because this one's a little abnormal. Um, and so I, it's, it's harder to think about what's actually happening right now. But in a normal administration, you would make sure you got the intelligence picture as good as you could get it. Um, assuming that took you to um, a launch from Iran or a launch from an Iranian proxy, then you're going to figure out, OK, what, do I, what are my policy options? What do I want to do about this? Right? Do I want to respond or not? I believe that we need to respond here. I think this was, particularly if the attack occurred from Iran. The attack occurred from Iran, that is, that is an act of war. Um, not just a terrorist attack, it's an act of war. So I think we have to deter the Iranians, and, I, and so I think we have to respond. But there will be a debate about that, right? The third thing I'd want to do is I would want to ensure there's proportionality. Because, because there is a risk that a U.S. counter-strike on the, on the Iranians would take you to a larger war. If the Iranians thought that a U.S. counter-strike um, was going after their leadership or was designed for regime change, then they might just let it all loose. So you've got to be extraordinarily careful and be proportional. And I think proportional in this case would be going after those sites where the missiles or drones were launched from, and maybe where they're stored. And that's it. 
I mean, somebody said to me earlier today, would you go after the oil infrastructure in Iran? Absolutely not. Oil infrastructure should be off limits. Um, and then the last thing I'd want to do, or the two last things I'd want to do, is I want, would want some of our partners to come with us. I don't want the Brits to come with us, or the French to come with us, or the best outcome, maybe both of them. Because um, I wouldn't want this just to be the United States. And then the last thing I do is I would prepare the intelligence case for public release. So that after you took the action, the president could say to the American people, here's why we did this. And they could have some confidence that there was a significant predicate here. You just addressed my question about credibility. So I am going to, just because there's a ton of stuff to ask about, I want to ask you about Afghanistan. Um, the president has recently effectively declared the prospect for a deal you know, as being dead. Uh, it's possible they'll resurface, especially after Afghan uh, elections. He has suggested that he wants to leave um, some intelligence presence behind. Is that um, a sound next step? And insofar as we need uh, to continue to seek out a deal with the Taliban, is that something that you think the Taliban would ever sign on to? So, you know, in most countries in the world, there's an intelligence presence because there's an embassy. Um, our intelligence footprint in Afghanistan is bigger than just the embassy because we have military bases out of which we can operate. If we withdraw all of our forces um, from Afghanistan, then those military bases go away and our intelligence footprint gets smaller. So we would still have an intelligence capability unless the Taliban took over and we had to get out of the embassy, um, which is what I think what, what what would happen if we left militarily. Um, so we would have some intelligence capability for some period of time. Um, the other thing I'd say about Afghanistan is, um, you know, I don't, I don't trust the Taliban at all. Um, I don't trust their, their, um, their claim that they will no longer work with Al-Qaeda, that they will renounce Al-Qaeda, that they will not provide safe haven to Al-Qaeda. Um, there's a great story that the Long War Journal just put out today about the Taliban providing significant explosives to Al-Qaeda to conduct attacks in Afghanistan. Um, and this is happening while we're negotiating with them, and this is happening while they're being invited to Camp David. Um, the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda is close. They have fought together for a very long time. They have fought together prior to 9-11 and ever since 9-11. They have shed blood together. Their families have intermarried. They're extraordinarily close. There's going to be no separation between the two. And you think that that sinks prospects for a deal, sort of, no matter what it is? No, or do you I, think look, that there is one to be struck? Look, I think the, the folks who negotiated the Vietnamese peace in Paris knew exactly what was going to happen when we left that the North Vietnamese would not live up to their commitment not to send troops south. Um, two years later, the, the embassy in Saigon fell. I think the people in Paris knew that. And I think, I think you know, a good number of the people negotiating uh, with the Taliban knew exactly what was going to happen if the United States left. So the Taliban you... would take over again. So there's really two choices you have, I think. Um, one choice is to stay. 
and one choice is to make the argument that staying in Afghanistan for the long term is the equivalent of US forces being in Western Europe during the Cold War, or US forces being in South Korea for the last X number of years, that this, this is a long-term commitment. Um, so that's one option. And if that's not politically feasible, and I'm the first one to tell you that if you're gonna put American forces somewhere, it's gotta be, it's gotta be acceptable to the American public. So if it's not, then the, your, your, your second best choice is to build a capability somewhere in the region. I don't know where that would be, but build a capability somewhere in the region where you can watch Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and you can, you can have a military capability to degrade them if you need to. I want to stay on the topic of deals, but I want to switch to North Korea, just because it's a whole globe to talk about. Um, is there value, do you think, in the president closing an eye to some of the short-range missile and other weapons tests that Kim Jong-un has carried out? Do you think that that is an instance of Kim pocketing a period of American benevolence, or do you think that that is laying useful groundwork for a potential future nuclear talks? I'm going to broaden the question just a little bit. I'm going to say that, that um, I think there's an argument for a president to chairman relationship. And maybe it's a little bit, maybe mine would be a little bit different than the president's. But it's, it, 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 I think it's impossible to overstate the degree of distrust in North Korea of the United States. The reason that Kim Jong-un has these weapons is because he so distrusts the United States. He believes the United States wants to overthrow him and his regime and reunite the peninsula on the South's terms. That's why he has these weapons. And so if you're going to break down that, if, if you're going to get to a deal someday on strategic weapons, you've got to break down that distrust. And I think president to chairman is a way to do that. Bill Clinton was thinking of going. Um, at the end of his presidency, he was thinking of going to North Korea. So President Trump wasn't the first one to think about, think about a, a, a personal relationship as a start here. Um, I think where the administration has failed is that they haven't taken that relationship that the president and Kim have built and turned it into a negotiation. Um, and so the, the, it's, not, it's not the short-range stuff that concerns me. It's the fact that they continue to make fissile material for nuclear weapons, and they continue their long-term ballistic missile development. Now, they're not testing, but they're still working on everything, and they're still adding to their stockpile. So Kim's pocketing that, and he's pocketing the, the domestic political benefits of being seen with the President of the United States and pocketing the, the, the international legitimacy that comes with that. Um, and so our failure has been the failure to turn that relationship into a negotiation. And so I think it's incumbent upon the president to basically say to Kim, look, our relationship is going to be over unless we get to negotiations. That's why we're talking. Do you think he should go to Pyongyang? I don't think he should go to Pyongyang. He's been invited. I, I think he should pick up the phone and call him or send him a letter that says, dude, right? The reason, the reason that we have this relationship is to get to negotiations. So let's do that or this relationship is over. China. Maybe not those exact words, but <laughs> that idea. Dude, maybe I was never a diplomat. Yeah. <laughs> um, China, just because I've heard you and plenty of other na senior national security officials say that it is the top long-term strategic threat facing this country, 
um, relative to where we were at the start of this administration. And since the release of the national security strategy in 2017, do you think that we are better postured than we were vis-a-vis -vis China? And are we thinking more clearly about what needs to be done? I don't think so. Um, look, I think this is the most important bilateral relationship in the world for what the world's going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and it is the most important because the range of outcomes in this relationship is so large. You know, ranging from the kind of cooperation we saw between President Obama and Xi Jinping on climate change, all the way to war at the other end of the spectrum. And I think there are a couple things that are pulling us in the right direction and a couple things pulling us in the wrong direction on that spectrum. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things pulling us in the right direction, and I think we should take advantage of this, um, the last trip I took as deputy director was to China, and I came back and I said what I'm about ready to say to you, to President Obama, is I saw plenty of, of areas of national security where Chinese and American interest overlapped. The Middle East is a great example. The Middle East is, stability in the Middle East is every bit as important, if not more important to China than it is to the United States. Um, they don't want, they're unhappy that the North Koreans have nuclear weapons. Um, they're worried about instability on the Korean Peninsula. So there, there are, there, and I could go through some others, there are plenty of places where we could be working with them on an, on an intelligence front first, a diplomatic front, and then even a military front someday. And I think that would help pull us in the right direction. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that are pulling us in the wrong direction strongly. One is that, is that the economics of the whole thing. So, you know, it used to be that we fit together like hand in glove. You know, we were complements to each other. They were, 25 years ago, they were labor rich, we were capital rich, those two things go together. No surprise that there was an explosion in trade when they joined the WTO with labor-intensive goods coming this way and capital-intensive goods going that way. Um, but now we're no, we're, we're no longer complements, we're competitors. And we're competitors in those industries of the future that not only will define what, what the future economy looks like, but also happen to be the bread and butter of what future intelligence systems and future military systems are going to look like. And then the other, and the most important, is, is they're the rising power, we're the status quo power, because they're the rising power, they, have a, they, they want a greater say in the world around them. Guess who has that say today? We do. We don't want to give it up. How does that get resolved? So, and I don't, think the, I don't think this administration has done anything about that big strategic problem I just talked about. Um, we're, we're very narrowly focused on trade and trade deficits and, you know, uh, steel and aluminum and, and when we should be worried about, about other things on the economic front and we should be worried about this bigger strategic problem. There have been strides made on the security front too, not to come to the administration's defense, but I also have time as a menace, so I want to ask you about a big story that happened last week um, on uh, reports of uh, a C, uh, the exfiltration of a CIA, CIA asset from Russia, um, who we understand to be integral to the intelligence community's assessment in 2016 
about Putin's strategic intentions. I want to ask you about a particular angle of those stories because uh, there was some media speculation that this individual uh, was living in the, in the United States under their real name. Under what circumstances would the agency abide a former asset living under his or her real name in the United States? So I'm not going to answer that question. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. Here's the question I will answer. So what, what struck me about this whole thing um, is, you know, when, when, when the story first broke, CNN says that the reason this asset, they said, they use the word extracted, by the way. The word is exfiltrated, which, you know, gave me a, gave me a moment of pause and wondered about the quality of their sources. Um, but they said we, the CIA did this because the CIA couldn't trust the President of the United States. The CIA categorically denied that, but CNN went ahead with the story anyway. That struck me. The other thing that struck me was two days later when the New York Times wrote their own piece about it, they said that the reason he was exfiltrated is because of news stories that came out right after the intelligence community assessment about Russia's interference in the election came out which is true, the Washington Post reported that one of the sources for Putin ordering this was a high-level CIA source in, in, um, in, in Moscow. So what struck me was, at first, the media, and I know I'm part of the media now, but I'm going to critique ourselves here. At first, the media said the president was to blame, but it turns out at the end of the day that the media was to blame. And According I to the agency. I don't think... I don't think there's a public need to know that the CIA has a source in Moscow who was part of the information chain um, for the ICA. I don't think that's in the public interest. I think that is, it's irresponsible to publish that information. You may have a different view. Um, but that's what I think. And that's what struck me about the whole story. One last chance to answer the actual question. <laughs> um, and I do disagree with some of your characterization. I'm sure. I'm because sure. I'm sure you do. Um, look, I, I, no, no. I'm, we, we, believe me, we go at this like this all the time. Um, look, I think that that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, you know, we exfil people all the time, all the time. Um, and at the end of the day, you let it be their choice as to how they want to handle their new life. Uh, you advise them. Even if that imperils their safety. You advise them about what that means for their safety. You encourage them. You push them. Um, but you don't dictate. OK. Um, I want to ask a smattering of questions before we open it up to the audience about the IC in particular. You and Amy Ziegart wrote um, a, an interesting piece about this dramatically different threat land landscape that the intelligence agencies in particular are facing, um, given this advent and acceleration of uh, new technologies like AI, like biotechnology, satellite technologies, um, it's effectively eroded America's intelligence lead. What is your sense of the recognition within the IC and sort of more broadly of this issue and whether th things are being put in place yeah. rapidly? In so I think it's recognized. Um, Gina Haspel, the director of CIA at Auburn University, was asked a question, um, what worries you the most? And she, her answer was keeping up with the change in technology. 
Glenn Gerstel, the general counsel at NSA, just wrote an op-ed where he argued the same thing. Sue Gordon, um, who just left the job as the number two in the DNI's office, has been talking about this for the last several years. So I think there is a recognition. I think the community um, is moving very slowly. Hmm. What implications does it have for something like collection, either sort of ubiquitous Surveillance means, you know, how do you how do you recruit and run yeah, an so, asset who may be who yeah. may be subject to facial recognition, yep, fingerprinting, yep, and everything. Yep. So here's the here's the here's the implication, right, of of, of all this new technology. Um, it has two impacts on you, the intelligence community. One, it makes some of the things that you do harder. So CIA officers traveling under alias is a lot harder with facial recognition, or biometrics, obviously. But it also creates opportunities for you to collect that you didn't have before. So question one is how do you mitigate what it puts at risk, and how do you take advantage of the opportunities it creates? So that's one effect. The second effect it has is it gives capability, gives opportunity for capability to the adversaries. So all of a sudden, there are 30-some countries in the world now with an imagery capability to take pictures, satellite pictures of the Earth. That wasn't true five years ago. So it creates opportunities for the other guys to get on a level playing field with you. Um, and I think the other impact that it has that doesn't get talked about very much is, is as, as General Hayden knows and Larry knows, you know, we've got in the intelligence community people who are real experts at nuclear weapons technology, at missile technology, I mean, some of the best people on the planet. We're going to need those same kind of people for AI, for biotechnology, for quantum computing. Probably have those at NSA. But we're going to need real experts with a depth of expertise on those issues so we can talk um, intelligently and be able to put things in context in terms of what the Chinese might be doing or what the Russians might be doing. You mentioned, Big challenge. Yeah. You mentioned Sue Gordon, who had her eye on this. Um, we had pretty stable stewardship of the IC until relatively recently. Um, we saw the sort of abrupt ouster of both Dan Coates and Sue Gordon last month. Um, what have you heard about what impact that's had on the IC, if any? Um, and what does a leadership change like that generally do to things like morale, recruitment, continuity? I mean, maybe there's no material effect. I don't know. You tell me. You know, I, I don't know. I don't interact on a daily basis, you know, with with folks in the community. Um, and when I do, I don't, I, because I'm with the media, I tend not to, you know, ask the kind of questions you would ask if you were with them. Because um, I, 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 I don't want to come across like I'm trying to collect information. Um, so I don't ask them about that. Um, you know, my sense, though, my sense is that they've kind of gotten used to this president that um, when he does, when he says something about the intelligence community um, that is, is not appropriate, that there's more of an eye roll now than there is concern. Um, and I think uh, uh, some, of the, some of the younger people that I have talked to, the sense I get from them is that, is that this will pass. Um, he won't be president forever. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to be here for a lot longer than he is. Um, I think there's a little bit, there's, there might be a little bit more of an outflow at more senior levels um, because of this. Um, 
But again, it's hard to say because I, I have not looked at it in, in a very scientific way. I want to ask you specifically about the apparent posture that Gina Haspel, director of the CIA, has adopted. And that is one of pretty limited visibility. We don't know a whole lot about her vision for the agency. She's made very few public appearances, let alone statements. Um, what are the pros and cons of doing that? And is your sense that she should be doing more in this moment? So she has clearly chosen. Right, look, look, and, and you know, being, being um, a cabinet member, uh, senior principal in this administration cannot be easy, um, particularly when you speak publicly. Um, and particularly if you're an intelligence officer. Um, and particularly when the media asks you, so what about Iran? What about North Korea? What about Afghanistan? Um, you know, when you, when, when you do speak publicly and you get asked those questions, the way you should answer them is the way your analysts would, you know, without the classified details. Um, but in this administration, there's a real risk that when you do that, you may be the subject of a tweet the next day. Um, and if you lean towards what the president would like you to say, then you're letting your organization down, and you're not doing your job, by the way, and you're politicizing intelligence. Um, but if you lean towards your building, and what you should be doing is saying, here's what the analysts think, um, then you put your relationship with your boss at risk. So clearly, she's seen this, this world, right, and has decided, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Um, it is too much of a risk to speak publicly. And when she has on two occasions, they've actually scripted the Q&A so that you, know, you have to write questions down, right? And then they kind of go through the questions before they figure out which ones they want to ask her. Uh, so the whole thing is scripted. Um, here's what you lose, I think. I think you lose two things. Um, I think transparency um, by the leadership of the IC is very important for two reasons. Um, and you lose both of them. Um, one is, I think it's very important for the leadership of the IC to talk about the issues that you and I have been talking about. It's really important to know on an, in a, on an unclassified basis what CIA thinks, what DIA thinks, because it then frames the public debate about those issues in a way that it doesn't do if you're not out there talking. You lose that. The other thing you lose is these are secret intelligence organizations operating in a democracy. And the American people need some confidence that they're being run well and being run wisely and being run legally and putting the, the leader of an agency or the community out there on a regular basis to be seen and heard um, and coming across well you know, gives the American people confidence that the community is doing what it's supposed to do. And you lose that too. So she's in a unique position as a current. You're in a unique position as a former, although not as unique as it used to be. Um, I just want to ask you before I swear to, to opening it up to the audience, you know, what does your calculus look like you, when you speak publicly? Um, you um, can either talk only about the facts. You can talk about sort of the political moment that we're in. You can talk about, um, you can sort of peel back uh, a, a bit of the curtain uh, of what the intelligence community does and is actually like. Um, some formers have gone more in one direction than the other. Um, how do you, again, make that calculus and have some of your fellow formers uh, made the wrong decision and how much they've said? So I think everybody's different, right? Um, 
the calculus that that I that that I've come to over time is to is to critique policy and not the person. Um, and the reason that I've critiqued whatever intelligence policy, national security policy, whatever it is, um, but not the person. And the reason I I've chosen that is because I think if I critique the person, then half of America is not going to listen to me about my critiques of policy. So it's more of, a, of, of an attempt to reach more people than it is fear of being tweeted about. Um, but that's the calculus I've made. You made a calculus in 2016 to endorse Secretary Clinton. You've since talked about that and said there were downsides to doing so. Um, what is your thinking going into 2020? Um, do you see yourself openly endorsing somebody, or do you see yourself? Uh, I don't refraining? know yet. I don't know yet. Um, we'll see who the, who the nominee is, um, how I feel about that person, um, where I think our politics are, whether I think my voice matters or not. Um, so I think it's probably too early to say. This was a bonus pod. I hope you enjoyed it. Please join us next week for another regular episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. And a special thanks to Levi Magyar for his on-site audio production at this event. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod. And follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.